Come together. Are we good? Very good. You can hear me. Hi, um, I'm Anya, one of the uh, pastoral team here at Central Vineyard. Um, just, yeah, so I'm picking up on a series on beautiful resistance. We've been basing this around a book by John Tyson. Sorry, Dan, your book is now very dog-eared. It's been loved by me. Um, and um, also on the Bible. So um, there are two things that we're kind of hanging this series um, on. And um, we have looked at this series over the last few weeks. So if you've missed any, I really encourage you to catch up. The main theme of the book is around resisting um, what the world presents before us and looking at how we live transformative countercultural lives, um, living more pressing into what God wants of us rather than what the world demands, um, living in his values. So yeah, if you've missed any of those talks, I won't give you a rundown because we're so far into the series that it will take me half the time I've got to talk, um, but please catch up all of the links to the podcast are on the website. Um, and today we're discovering the theme of hospitality. And in the book, this is um, labelled as hospitality resists or is stronger than fear. Uh, we'll discover, hopefully in our time today, what it is to be radically hospitable without holding anything back. Hospitality is often considered in the context of guests who we invite into our homes <clears throat> and making the stranger welcome. In fact, the Greek word for hospitality is a compound between friend and foreigner, making the foreigner a friend an invitation to the unknown. So I'm going to be drawing um, from examples of Jesus' ministry from the book of Luke. Um, so if you want somewhere to have ready in your Bibles, you just can open right at the beginning of Luke. We'll be starting in Luke chapter 5. But we see right from the start of Jesus' life, right from the moment um, that the angel meets Mary, there's a radical need for hospitality. Mary invites, invites God to make his home within her. Jesus' birthplace relied on the hospitality of strangers, a baby born, a vulnerable stranger, in a place that wasn't even his home, a foreign land without any kingly welcome. I'm just going to put this off there, I thought I'm looking down. Jesus' nomadic existence plots him forever as the stranger, the outsider, the visitor who does not belong to any one place, but makes his home amongst the strangers and outsiders of his time. Those who receive him, who offer hospitality, most often the marginalised, the poor and the despised, find that Jesus brings them in to a much wider sphere of hospitality, not just what happens within the home, but the hospitality of God. In the words of Brendan Bine, who wrote the, who wrote the book, The Hospitality of God, a reading of Luke's Gospel, says, the one who comes as a visitor and guest is in fact the host and offers hospitality in which human beings and potentially the entire world can become truly human, be at home and can know the salvation in the depths of their heart. Hospitality is about finding our true home and making that open to others. So let's start in Luke chapter 5. Like I say, this is a chapter, the whole thing's packed full of invitation. We see Jesus' invitation to the fishermen brothers to abandon the family trade and to follow him. A man played with leprosy, Jesus' hands outstretched, touching the untouchable. The invitation to a healed man in the temple, entry suddenly made available because of this encounter with Jesus. And then Jesus teaching within a home where a man is lowered into that, into that um, place. An act of hospitality had occurred where Jesus had gone in to teach and a man desperate to break his way through. 
And then we have Jesus connecting with Levi, also known as Matthew. So in other gospels, this is his first encounter with Matthew, a tax collector invited to follow him. So we're going to read together. It'll be up on the screens, but if you want to read in your um, own text, it's, it's Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous, not, sorry, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. When we look at Jesus, when we look at his radical life of hospitality, we see that he is countercultural. Now, this is a word that we've begun to use a bit over the last year uh, within Central Vineyard. It is not something new. We are going back over 2,000 years here, and we model this on Jesus. But why was who he was dining with so controversial? Again and again, we read in the Gospels criticism from the other religious leaders of why would he be eating with them? Now, being invited into somebody's home in Jesus' time was a really intimate act. Much of um, life was conducted outside in public places, and the home was a place of privacy and retreat. Furthermore, at this time, uh, the Pharisees had committed to something known as the Renewal Movement, which elevated the table, the place of eating, to a place of religious significance. Now, remember, the Jews had been waiting for what seemed like forever to see God come again to break the tyranny of Roman occupation. They were taking matters into their own hands and trying to live more holy, more sanctified, to hope that God would then come. The Torah had outlined a set of holiness commands which were necessary for approaching the altar, and they applied these to the home. If we make ourselves cleaner, if we live better lives, if we separate ourselves from everyone that's unclean, then God would surely come through. So sharing your table even for the standard Jew, um, with anybody who was not part of this covenant community was unacceptable. But for the Pharisees and those that um, signed up to the renewal movement, it was horrific to think that you might invite somebody and make that table unclean. Also at the time, think culturally, the the table was a real boundary marker of who was accepted in and who wasn't, a place to establish social ranking at the head of the table would be the most important person in the room. And then as you work your way down the table, and possibly not at the table at all, were the students, those wanting to be more holy, those wanting to be more Jewish, or who were just less important. In one glance around the room, you could see where people stood and who you needed to spend time with and who could just be overlooked. So to invite somebody to your table who is of no significance or worse, a Gentile would be absolutely horrific. It'd be like inviting a stray dog into your home and and dirtying the place of holiness and honour. Jesus had a completely controversial understanding of the table compared to the renewal movements of his day. Those invited to the table through Luke, which we'll explore, um, and other Gospels, turned things upside down for for the Pharisees. They are angry and indignant and outraged. Does Jesus not understand anything? But then Jesus flips it again. 
do the Pharisees not understand anything? In Matthew's account of his call, he quotes Jesus in saying, I want loving kindness, not a gift to be given, for I've come for I've not come to call good people, I've come to call those who are sinners. Now, we also need to put this in the context that sinners were not necessarily bad people who had done a bunch of wrong things. Maybe they were Jews, but just those aren't trying hard enough, not acting holy enough, not willing to commit to this renewal movement, and therefore left behind. And Jesus was going around undermining these practices and contaminating the holy places to try and establish a different idea of the table. So at best, he would have been considered to be uh, be not taking religious sanctity seriously. And at worst, he was sabotaging the holiness agenda and derailing God's plan. He was really getting in the way. The invitation to the table from Jesus was, for almost everyone he ate with, was nothing less than scandalous. So with this in mind, try to imagine the horror of Simon as we look at Luke 7. Simon's a Pharisee who invites Jesus into his home. Now, whether he invited Jesus out of admiration or intrigue or genuine interest, we don't know. But we see that Jesus has accepted the invitation and has been appointed to sit near him, reclining with Simon, given a place of honor. So picking this up in Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to his house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him. Now, Jesus hears the remark. He addresses it head on. He doesn't shrink back in embarrassment. He doesn't defend. He takes authority and strips away the judgment from the host. He says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had, had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of those would love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. An invitation means so much more to the excluded than it does to those expecting a seat at the table. This woman, unclean, rejected in every way, showed hospitality that had been overlooked by the host. She finds acceptance and love that overcomes her shame and her fear. Jesus is not afraid to lift her head and include her and make a center of attention for the right reasons rather than the wrong. And we know this woman to be Mary Magdalene, a woman who took time, who Jesus took time to know by name, whose life became centered around him, forever changed by that first encounter when Jesus receives her hospitality and then invites her into a lifetime of hospitality with him. The foreigner becomes the friend. John Tyson reflects, the story that, sorry, the church has always had a concern that we will be contaminated by the world. But Jesus's vision is that his holiness is stronger than the worldliness around us. He did not think that holiness was fragile, 
He felt like it was a more, most robust force on earth. And so he was not afraid to touch that what, which is unclean because he believed he had the power to make it clean. He was not afraid to touch those as outsiders because he did not feel like he was going to be dragged into the world. He thought they'd be dragged into the kingdom. Jesus had this vision so Jesus could freely, radically show scandalous love and welcome to everybody. If God is about saving people, he needs to go to those who need his salvation. If God is about healing people, he has to go to those who are sick. And if he's about inviting people into relationship, he has to go to the lonely. If he's about restoring dignity, he has to go to the broken. So the Pharisees had completely missed the heart of God's mission. They thought it was about reserving moral purity, but God's heart was about rescuing sick humanity. His mission is to show God's priorities and not the priorities of the world. And I wonder what God would like to shake up today. What are his priorities compared to ours? Who is around our table? What would radical inclusion look like here, right here at Central Vineyard, in our lives and in our homes? Who needs to be around our tables? Where do we need to stretch that invite? Where is God calling us to show hospitality? And if we look at Jesus, the example that he sets, then maybe it's different to what the world expects. And Jesus didn't create these moments of hospitality to um, cause a scandal, but he certainly didn't shy away from it. He He was forever looking for opportunities to connect with the least likely in the middle of the most likely. Take, for example, Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Jesus meets him in Jericho. Now, Jericho was the, the place to be in the first century. It was called an oasis city, a city of trees and water, where King Herod built his winter palace. There was a massive sporting hippodrome where the priests of Jerusalem had their homes. Now, Jesus could have easily, as he was passing through, spent time with religious leaders. There must have been loads of people that were significant and that he could have had an impact on. He could have had some fascinating debates. He could have gone into a place of luxury and been really looked after. But as Jesus moves through this place, he doesn't turn off his mission or think, do you know what, I'm on a day off today. He lived a life of invitation and hospitality where he was always looking for what the Father was doing. So Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be at the house of the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, a man of power and wealth, had a bankrupt soul. 
He was always yearning for more, desperate to fit in to be included, but shunned because of his behavior. And Jesus calls him out and he sees him in this moment. Zacchaeus' heart is cracked wide open. His soul is exposed. Immediately he's flawed and he gives an audit of his wrongdoings, humble before the king. Here we see a miracle before us, the camel going through the eye of the needle. In one moment, in one invitation, everything changes. This is what happens with the invitation. Luke explores how the invitation creates a connection between hospitality and transformation, which ultimately, and most importantly, leads to salvation. Zacchaeus had tried to build a life for himself that would fulfill, but he never gets there on his own. He literally goes out on a limb of a tree, metaphorically too, reaching for something that he sees in Jesus that's just out of reach. The invitation shines a light in the darkness and the gift of salvation is illuminated. He suddenly sees what he's been missing. All the other things that he's built up for himself, power, family, work, everything else falls away, suddenly not as important, while this great exchange takes place. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house and he indicates what's happened for Zacchaeus, but also to the wider community. Salvation is bigger than one person. It's as big as God and as intimate as his quiet invitation for us to come and take his hand and join him at the table. Zacchaeus is redeemed by the gentle love of a saviour who knows him completely despite only just meeting him. Jesus was bringing the redemptive edge where the kingdom pushed up against the culture of the time with a heart of love and peels back all of that religious gumph that was entangling. The heart of God that says, you are invited, you are included. In the words of Solomon, almost a thousand years before, Jesus modelled, he invites us to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. So not only would Jesus' mission of hospitality frustrate the Pharisees, it would have also unnerved them. Who was this man going around forgiving sins, changing lives, bringing redemption, talking about salvation through a single invitation or encounter. Salvation should be worked for, sacrificed, paid for. But actually, this was something that only God could do. In This fresh perspective of grace would have been groundbreaking. And we so often take this for granted. We're so familiar. We forget how scandalous God's grace is. Because of this grace, we can often forget that we are the stranger. We are the outsider that's been welcomed in. We are the Gentile, the stray dog. We have been given a seat at the table despite rejecting God again and again. From the story of Eden, we've been barred from the garden. We belong on the outside, but God has wandered the earth looking for us, scoured it to bring us back. Jesus' hospitality echoed this unexpected and unreasonable love of the stranger. In Luke 15, again we read, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he goes on to share three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin and the prodigal son. And each one we see 
something of value being sought after, longed for, treasured, and brought home. The way that Jesus treasured and brought home each sinner who ate with him. He ends the story of the lost son with, bring quickly the best robe and put it on. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the outrageous, scandalous grace and love of God that each of us has received. In the words of John Tyson, Jesus' ministry was the rescuing love and welcome of God on display. Jesus' posture was one of inclusion and embrace. He created a portal of heaven, welcome for those who've been pushed out and shunned. We are the stranger. We are the shunned, the rejected, and we have been welcomed in, invited, and embraced. Jesus has a completely different vision of what God wants to do at the table, opposed to the traditions of the men. For Jesus, the table is seen as God's place of great welcome, not a place of exclusion. There's a desperate cry in all of us to belong. The reason people give themselves to politics, societies, hobbies, clubs, work or volunteering. We want to connect. We want to be somebody within a foreign place. That ache for welcome and belonging is the core of all of our hearts. It's the way God has made us. And to follow Jesus is to learn to meet that ache with the grace of God and to connect with others. We've heard many times when people have walked through the doors of Central Vineyard that they feel at home. This is a place to belong, whether it's on a Sunday or during our ministries in the week. We love that and we hope that is true for every single person that has come today. But that's made possible only by every person here. It's not down to leadership or structures, good strategies or programs. It's down to the invitation of each of us, looking for the opportunity to welcome the stranger, move up, make room, make a friend of the foreigner. Jesus modeled how we can slow down and see what God sees, make the invitation, enable the right person on the edges to be welcomed in and to belong. This is our heart for Central Vineyard, our heart for Northampton and wider, to have our senses sharpened by the Holy Spirit, to see what he sees and to go where he goes. What holds us back, though, from living radically generous lives where hospitality is our natural go-to, where invitation is our first thought, when we see somebody lost, left behind or cast out? We can convince ourselves maybe that it's we're too busy. Um, maybe we have other priorities, just not enough time. Too many things going on to make room for this. You know how it is. We might turn down, though, you know, X, Y, and Z, the work party, the walk with a friend, request for help from a neighbor. I just haven't got time. I just can't. I've got too much on. And then somebody else might offer you free tickets for a gig that you've always wanted to see. Letter from school invites you um, to come and see your child's concert or maybe dinner out with a friend that you've not seen in a long time and you drop everything. Suddenly, you make time. Busyness is not our biggest problem. Apathy and fear of the unknown is often the thing that holds us back. And we can look at Jesus and think, well, surely he was an extrovert. 
He had no problem dining at the table of strangers, speaking in large crowds, exploring unknown places, attracting attention. But we also see his desperate need to retreat, to get away, um, to be with God, to have his soul restored. The characteristics of an introvert, or perhaps of many humans. And I think we can make excuses that Jesus handled this much better. I'm just not wired up that way. So we opt out and don't try. But I'm sure that Jesus too made an effort. He made choices. He set out his intention day by day to follow his father's voice and act in obedience, even when it would have been uncomfortable. In the book, John Tyson quotes that the theologian, don't know how to say his name actually, Mislav Golf. I'm not sure I've even written that down right. Somebody, somebody, somebody knows this, Al. Deborah, of course, it is. Um, who states that our entire culture has been built on the persistent practice of exclusion. Our instincts are continually sharpened to push others to the margins of our minds, hearts, and lives. So rather than seeing people, the stranger, those different to us, as a gift, we see them as a threat. Maybe it's going to threaten our security, what we know. People who look like us, dress like us, share our same worldview, political, religious or otherwise, or who generally agree with us and affirm us, are much more comfortable to spend time with. And it's often a scary place to put ourselves in environments where those things will be challenged. At university, I studied um, social anthropology, which was the study of people and their cultures, their traditions and habits. It's about the interesting things that make up Uh, who we are. However, as modern anthropology evolved from the 18th century, studies focused on the differences to work out the sameness of humankind. And what happened through all of these studies was that an idea arose of the other. So that means that those who are the same as us, the same as you, same as me, whoever you are, is acceptable, is normal, is the right thing. And those who are different, the other, are maybe suspicious, interesting, or something very different. Different was regarded as less than, something to be cautious of, skeptical of, or in all cases, distanced from. We have an affinity to sameness. We fear the other, what is so different. Whilst we might be several hundred years on from this, we know that current affairs have not actually advanced in many ways. And I would love to say that our society has come to accept everybody for who they are, who they love, what they believe. But in reality, this is a falsehood of our time because we are caught in a council culture. If we stand up for something different, we can so often be written off, shut out and excluded. Are we actually any different from the Pharisees? You're eating with him? Of course, we might be most accepting to refugees, those with disabilities, or many other differences. But accepting is different to hospitality. I'm really deeply touched by what Tatiana shared about John and Harriet's hospitality. Their response to a virtual stranger. What can we do to help? How can we support you? There were so many unknowns, I'm sure, for their family. So many unknowns too for Tatiana 
in accepting that. But this is an example of radical hospitality. What does it look like to be radically generous to a stranger? And what, taking it a step further, to the unacceptable stranger? What if you found out that somebody who lived in your community, in your street, was deemed as dangerous or controversial? What if somebody acted or behaved in a way that you felt was very strange? Do we wrap our arms around them and welcome them or shuffle up the bench, making cautious eye contact? John Tyson shares this story of a guy called Derek Black, a white supremacist, son, stepson of the supreme leader of the KKK and son of the creator of the largest white nationalist website in the world. When he was at university, um, it came out, so this is about 10 years ago, of who he was, of his identity. He was shunned by everybody, perhaps not surprisingly. But a Jewish classmate, Matthew Stevenson, invites him to a Sabbath meal. Derek Black was completely on his own. In desperation, he accepted the invite. And the anti-Semitic organizer of extreme hate crimes was invited to a feast with this Orthodox Jew. It seemed both incredulous, but perhaps familiar, reminding us of the one who set that example. So Derek shows up at Matthew's house week after week. He takes part in this meal where he finds acceptance despite the behavior that made him an outcast. His views at that time were not changed. He did not confess anything. He was just accepted as he was. Over time, he found love that he should never have been shown, perhaps. He changed his ways and created genuine relationship with those that were so different to him. He took classes that expanded his worldview and he was shaped by outrageous hospitality and grace. Month by month, his life transformed and in 2013, he gave a public declaration of apology in the National Intelligence Report on Hate Crimes in the US. He said, I'm sorry for the damage I've done the differences I thought I observed did not nearly go as deeply as I imagined. He talks of a revelation and a change of heart, discovering through a diverse community into which he was made welcome. There is as much significance in the 21st century as there was in the first century of being fully accepting and loving the other. I find that story incredible. I think there are some that we find it easier to be hospitable to than others. So how do we break this fear, the thing that holds us back? Now, the first step is taking the first step. We know how distant we all became during lockdown, not just physically, but emotionally too. And I know that um, we, our family, were not the only ones who became frustrated with difference, difference of interpreting rules, behaviors that we saw only virtually. We made up narratives in the spaces created between one another, mistrustful, fearful. Those that we knew so well were at a distance. And we were made constantly aware of the dangers of not social distancing, but sociologists also studied the dangers of social distancing, namely rejection, impersonality, disconnecting, intolerance, individualism, and loss of community. One paper published in 2020 stated, first and foremost, 
Social distancing measures carried a strong psychological message, which is the fear of others. Physical measures to reduce contamination created barriers of avoidance and exclusion of self-preservation and psychological damage. And how did we begin to overcome some of the rifts that had emerged? Through community, through reconnecting and being together. Virtual groups and Zooms, connecting online was not the way to overcome this. There's a far deeper level of trust and openness when gathered together in an intimate space in somebody's home. We can tolerate difference when we are welcomed in. We can accept challenge when we know that we are really known. There is something powerful about hospitality that overcomes fear. But even now, as we embark on building communities here at Central Vineyard, there is a, stem, sorry, there is a sense of cautiousness in stepping in. Unsure, perhaps, what to expect of each other. Unsure how much we want to commit. Let's not muddle our fear for busyness and inconvenience. We can miss out on the life-changing richness of hospitality because of our fear. Hospitality that resists fear is so much more than tokenism. It's more than those one-off moments that we might get over a cup of coffee in the lounge before the service. It's faithfully committing to each other, creating genuine community where the other is preferred. It's coming together with the expectation that others have something to give us. That the stranger is of value and that we are not better off, distanced or virtually connected. So what would it look like to have diverse communities in this church where we are known and loved and supported, where we're invited and can thrive, where the other becomes a friend through radical hospitality, where we can challenge growth and celebrate freedom in each other's lives because we have created spaces where we can really be, really be with each other. Henry Nguyen says, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer a space where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. So if you've joined us um, over this summer or missed out a chunk when we were talking about communities, you might be scratching your head and thinking, I don't really know what this word means in the context of Central Vineyard. Communities are beginning to form this autumn. We've got three groups which will begin to gather individuals, families, couples into a diverse group that will be shaped by the needs of those within the group and the calling of those outside. And we've been asked, are these the same as Bible studies or connect groups or anything else that's happened in the past? And the quick answer to that is no. Um, rather than 10-week blocks set on a certain night where you might study the Bible or do other things together, this is more of an organic um, connection of building life together in an authentic way. They'll ma last much longer than 10 weeks. And if you think of the Sunday gatherings as the family party, then our communities are the households. They're the place where you are known and can grow and be loved and connect. Communities are the opposite, the antidote of social distancing. They're created social, social places where real connections can take place, where we can get into each other's lives, rooting for spiritual health and real life. It's not a social group that fills a place on your calendar. 
It's doing life together in a myriad of ways that says, I'm in, I'm fully in. Where we encounter the destructive grace of God around the table, maybe walking together in the countryside over a cup of coffee or whilst the kids are playing. The table in our communities may take many different shapes and forms and may change from one week to the next. But the radical hospitality that will be present in each of our communities will be a portal to the kingdom of heaven. So I invite you, let's stand as we come to the end of this. I invite you to be invitational. I invite you to prefer the other, to join Jesus in bringing the redemptive edge that cuts across culture. I invite you to make a table where you can literally or metaphorically welcome others into a place of healing and salvation, a place where others can meet with Jesus. You are the strategy for the kingdom of heaven to grow. Let us not be too busy. Let us step out beyond the fear and discomfort. Let us be like Jesus and do what Jesus did and follow the lead of the Spirit to be outrageously hospitable and commit to lives where we can be transformed and expect transformation through God in others. As Dan comes to join me, we're just going to have some time to pray and reflect. So, Holy Spirit, you are here, you are in our midst, you are through our teaching and our worship in this space. And we say, come and just bring any of these words alive into the hearts and minds of those who are here today. We give you space to work, Holy Spirit.